Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we'll be talking to a uh, friend of the show, Nina Turner, and she has a, a new group, which is for supporting striking workers. Yeah, right? we, I, I love think it's it. Called, it's called We Are Somebody, and it's a strike fund, and I'd love to talk to her and know, like, is this about the UAW in particular, or is it about, it, you know, is it broader than that? Does it go beyond that? And it's something that you love to see, especially now that we have this revival of labor in the country that, number one, the polls have skyrocketed in support of unions and in support of labor. But number two, now you have some progressive heavyweights getting involved and like, I'm going to I'm going to help this out. Yeah, well, it's I mean, I've said this a million times. I think it's the most hopeful thing happening in American politics. I think it's potentially the most transformational thing happening in American politics. So to get someone with the weight and charisma of Nina Turner behind it is amazing. I'm excited to talk to her about it and hear her inspiration and her plans and all of that stuff. Of course. So we'll talk about that. We'll uh, hop into the interview in a little bit. But before we do, there's a couple things to talk about. Now, left on the cutting room floor is there. Now there's all these other Republican congressmen who are giving interviews and they're like, Matt Gates is sort of a pedo. Anyway, <laughs> like, have you seen this? There's like interviews yeah. on CNN where people are saying this. And I knew once he started causing a big stink and once he got rid of McCarthy, basically he led the charge and was able to do it. I knew like, oh, they're going to Madison Cawthorn his ass. Now, by the way, that's not me saying that the claims are false. In fact, my instinct is quite the opposite. <laughs> I think whatever dirt they have on him is probably real in the same way the stuff they had on Madison Cawthorn was real, but they only release it in a scenario where it's like, okay, you crossed the wrong people, right? Because it was 95% of the caucus that was still for Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, I mean, Gates, uh, according to what McCarthy said, he's like, this isn't about ideology. It's purely personal. And he's pissed about this ethics, ethics investigation that was launched against him. And there's some noises about expelling him from the caucus. I, I very sincerely doubt they will actually expel him because um, their majority is so thin. And it also raises the question of like, you're expelling Matt Gates, but George Santos still hanging out yeah. here under yeah, multiple George federal Santos, employment. Like, ridiculous yeah, it doesn't yeah. really make a lot of sense. So anyway, yeah, so but, but it's a it's just a total shit show. But anyway, there, and I love to see it. That, me too. <laughs> that was left on the cutting it. room floor. You guys could check out break, the breaking points coverage on it or the secular talk coverage on it. We beat that horse to death. Yeah. Right. But so uh, woke up earlier today and I saw and you, you actually just did a monologue on this, too. Mm -hmm. For the first time maybe ever you're beginning to see with trump that he kind of knows this is different what's going on with him right now yeah with regard to his business fraud trial right and, i mean yeah the monologue i did started with like this time the walls actually did close in you know there's all the like oh the walls are closing in on trump and then it never happens there's never any accountability his poll numbers stay the same or go up at least for republicans etc cetera, etc cetera. with this business fraud trial They've already found that he committed fraud. Yes. And now it's like, all right, how hard are we going to hit you? And the potential penalties are quite severe. Already they've revoked his and his son's business licenses in the state of New York. So how he's going to move forward doing any of his New York business, I don't know. What Letitia James is seeking is $250 million, which is a lot of money. And he doesn't have a jury. Right. It's just this judge who clearly, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of love lost. And he's been attacking them. the judge. Right. Like, bro, you are absolutely screwing yourself here. So and th again, this isn't even a criminal case. This is the civil fraud case. But the punishments are 
you could argue just as bad as time behind bars when they revoke your business license in New York and you pay up to a $250 million fine, which you can't afford. And then the other question is how long until other creditors pull out because they realize, oh my God, you know, this whole empire was built on fraud. And I went through, I mean, it was like a 280 page claim against Trump from Letitia James. And I remember going through a lot of the specifics that she laid out in her press conference. Mm -hmm. And it was like, Nobody in good faith can hear that stuff and just swat it aside. I mean, to me, the one that's most brazen that the judge obviously took a lot of issue with is he claimed that his own personal residence in Trump Tower was 30,000 square feet. And that justified a certain like very high valuation. And it was only 11. It was less than 11,000. So it lies about everything. You're like, a everything. real estate developer. Like it, it, there is no credibility to the idea that, oh, I just messed up and like misestimated it. You lived there and you're a real estate developer. You know it was not 30,000 square feet. And their argument from his defense was like, oh, well, it's common to be off a little bit. And, you know, there's no really set standard for how to measure square feet. And the judge was like, maybe if you were off by 5%, maybe even 10%, this 30,000 square feet? No. And, and that's just typical of the type of just brazen lies that he was telling in order to secure loans or whatever he needed to do. And it's one thing to fleece regular people. It's another thing when you do colossal bank fraud and insurance fraud and you list your properties as way less than they're worth to pay a very low tax bill. But then you turn around and when you're trying to get some loan from a bank on favorable terms, you juice terms, you juice it up like 10 times. Yeah. And so this it was like brazen fraud. So anyway, he he now seems to sincerely think like oh, no, this isn't good because he's in the same situation Alex Jones was in. Alex Jones yeah. was found guilty by default in his uh, defamation trial, the civil trial. And he kept going to the court proceedings. But the court proceeding at that time was not about guilt or innocence. The court proceeding at that time was what is your penalty going to be? You're already guilty. Mm. Now we're just determining what how what, bad. Yeah, how bad it's going to be. And he would go into the courtroom. He'd come out after and be like, they won't even let me defend myself. They, you know, th this is unheard of. And it's like, well, that because that part already passed. It's the same thing with Trump. You're already liable for fraud. So now it's just how much are they going to pay? And yeah, and I guess he's, it's beginning to set in. Or he's beginning to realize it. So he goes on True Social and he says the ridiculous AG case against me in New York brought by the racist and incompetent peekaboo James. What is being studied and mocked all over the world? Companies are fleeing, fleeing it. And the highly political Trump hating judge are destroying the image and reputation of the New York state legal system and courts. I don't even get a jury. That's your attorney's fault. All of this, well, <laughs> murders and violent crime hit unimaginable records. This is so bad for New York. Help! The respected <laughs> commercial division, where it should have been sent in the first place, must take over this SH show. So, homie put help in all caps with an exclamation point, which <laughs> says to me, like, he he's beginning to know that, like, there ain't going to be no wiggling out of this. And that's why he's still trying to do the thing where I know I'm losing in the legal setting. So when I get out, it's all political and I go on the offense politically. And so he's given press conferences afterwards. This is disgraceful. This is a witch hunt. This right. is all this stuff. And he even basically admitted he committed fraud in one of the press conferences afterwards. Um, it was it was kind of astonishing that he was like, um, well, it said on our statement that don't believe the statement. Right. So we put on our financial statement that, like, you do your own research, do your own due diligence. You can't trust this thing. Right. He, he says that. And it's like, well, that's the point here. That was one of the arguments that his defense team tried to make 
and that the judge immediately swatted down as absurd and ridiculous. You can't just put on something on a financial statement that's like, you shouldn't really trust this and think that you're good and, you know, it's all fine and good and you can just lie and say whatever you want. He swatted that aside. They continued to try to make that argument. And he was so irritated by that that he actually financially sanctioned Trump's lawyers for continuing to make these absolutely like absurd and spurious arguments in an attempt to defend him. So um, between that and the fact that one of the lawyers apparently forgot to like check the box to ask for the jury trial, he's uh, he's he's not getting the best representation at this point. I would listen. Say. And the MAGA people have nothing. The big thing that like Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. were were harping away on on Twitter in the wake of this is like, oh my God, this judge says Mar-a-Lago is worth eighteen million dollars, which you know is a witch hunt because here are these properties that are smaller and they're worth way more. And this is obviously political. I can't believe he would say it's worth $18 million. That's unbelievable. But what they don't tell you is the $18 million number didn't come from the judge. It came from the Trumps one year to try to get a low tax bill. Yes. They said it was worth $18 million. That's right. And then they turn around. Sometimes they say it's worth $1 billion. Sometimes they say it's worth $1.5 billion. In one legal filing, they had it at $739 million. And this was at a time when the valuation was maximum $75 million. And so it, it's, it's a total scam. It's, it's totally fraudulent. And... It's amazing to me that they use that example because it's like anybody who actually digs into the specifics and reads about it is going to know you guys are lying. Like this is a very obvious lie that all it takes is reading what the judge actually said and reading what the claim actually was in order to debunk it. And the other thing they don't tell you is it's actually worth a lot less than what they pretend it's worth sometimes uh, because it's very restricted property. Right. So it's it can only be a club. You can't change it into, you know, build up some rich person building a mansion there in Florida. And it's all I think it's almost up to 30 percent of the money if slash when it gets sold has to go to some conservation thing for the state of Florida. So yet another reason why, you know, it's just preposterous, the numbers that they give. And they just got caught speeding. Now, by the way, the more important part of this is a poll came out not too long ago from Survey USA, And one of the points I've been making for a while is um However much of a strike against Biden it is, like his age, mm -hmm. the fact that he's like a dusty carcass who's decomposing <laughs> right in front of our eyes. Yeah. Like, that is, is a that a liability? A well, absolutely. Yeah. Common sense <laughs> says it's a liability and there could be some normies who look at that and go, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. But in the context of that conversation, nobody ever brings up it is either an equal liability or a bigger liability to have somebody who has 91 criminal charges against them on the other side. And so now we have uh, a new poll that came out. So if it's just straight up Trump versus Biden, you have 43 to 43. Yep. Okay, that sounds about right to me. If Trump is convicted, but he doesn't go to prison, uh, Biden gets 39, Trump gets 36. So now a three point lead for Biden mm -hmm. and someone else gets 18 percentage points. In this scenario, that could be RFK. That could be Cornell West. It could be a mixture, et cetera. No labels, candidate, whatever. No, yeah, whatever. Uh, so but then you have. If Trump is convicted and goes to prison over any of his criminal charges, ready for this? Biden, 39%. Trump, 26%. Someone else, 27%. Wow. So, in other words, look, there are real political consequences. People got so used to there not being political consequences for Trump for so long that they think, like, that's in, like, that's a law of political reality. But no... It's like stuff still applies to him, which is why even if you look at the record, 2016, he won. Republicans did well. Every election since then, 
with him as the leader of the Republican Party, yeah. they've struggled massively. All these special elections now where Democrats have won like 24 of 28. They overperformed in 24 of 28 of them. The midterms, everybody thought there was going to be a red wave. And I was agnostic. So I'm like, I just don't know. This party's insane. And it turns out the Democrats did a lot better than anybody expected. So I think that <clears throat> this is a big liability for for Trump. And now what we're seeing with the fraud case, I even think just the fraud stuff is a big hit against him. I think um, there is a lot of justified worry on the Democratic side. I think there should be a bit of a panic about how poorly Joe Biden is faring right now in the polls against, you know, a guy who does have all these criminal charges against him, et cetera, et cetera. But there seems to be no thought whatsoever of how normal people are going to react to Trump going through this process of these trials and potentially facing prison time and what that is going to look like and what it's going to look like even when, you know, he's back at the center, center, center of our politics and people are being reminded of all the worst aspects of him. That and I do think and we were talking about this yesterday because. It does seem like whereas previously the polls were understating Trump's support, it seems like Roe versus Wade being overturned and the, you know, with the Dobbs decision has shaken up the political landscape so much that polls are now really misreading who the electorate is and who's going to show up. It's the only way that I can explain the difference between, you know, the polls leading into the supposed red wave that never was and the polls leading into all of these special elections where Democrats have been outperforming by an average of 11 points. Not one off here, weird circumstances. Oh, this particular seat was really about abortion. No, an average in every special election, Democratic overperformance by 11 points. So that's my best guess of what's going on here is that, you know, it's not that people are in love with Joe Biden. It's not that they feel great about the economy. They don't. They feel very, you know, very depressed about the direction of the country in general, even though as I've laid down and you've laid down, I think Biden's done some good things that over the medium to long term in particular are going to pay off. I think it's been important for the labor movement, et cetera. But people feel depressed about where we are and where we're going. It's not that they feel great about Biden, but they look at the other side and are like, no, well, especially now with Gates and McCarthy and everything going on with that, it, too. Absolutely. I mean, who can look at that and be like, yeah, these people are up to governing. Yeah. So you made a great point to me the other day that I'm going to repeat now. This really stuck with me when you told me this because I didn't know this. Uh, Macron in France. Yeah. Had a 37 percent approval rating. That's a disaster, no matter who you are. Yeah. Right. But at, when he had that, he won reelection handily. And that was a light bulb moment when you told me that. Because I was like, oh, my God, that's right. There's a pretty clear discrepancy between what Joe Biden's approval rating is at any given moment and the number of people who will actually say, OK, I'll go cast a vote for him. Because if you ask me, if I get called by a pollster and they're like, do you approve of the job Joe Biden's doing? I'd be like, no. Right. I don't. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, but if it's him versus Trump. Would I vote for Biden? Absolutely, I would vote for Biden. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people who fall in that category. For sure. Where it, he could have a 37%, 32% approval rating. And it's just, and again, it's because of all the evidence that we just laid out. The Democrats overperforming by 11 percentage points, winning like 24 of 28, or doing better in 24 out of 28 special elections. The the red wave that wasn't in the midterm. All those things put together is like, oh, that is the only logical explanation I can think of. Exactly. Yeah. And I do think that Roe being overturned was a very radicalizing moment for a lot of people, a lot of young people in particular, where liberals have really been 
you know, fed and indoctrinated into this view of like the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards right. justice. And then you're like, wait a second, what happened that to this happen. moral arc? Yeah. The moral arc is going in the opposite direction. It is not bending towards justice. It's bending towards injustice. And oh, by the way, we see what these psychos are trying to do at the state level. And we see what these psychos are trying to do at the federal level. And even if, you know, Biden's not my cup of tea and I got all kinds of grievances and issues here, like we got to stem the tide and make sure it doesn't get even worse. I think that's been very radicalizing. In a lot of these elections, you know, where they've tracked this data, they've found that young people have shown up in much larger numbers than they typically would in a midterm election or a special election. And that's really made a difference in a lot of these um, instances. And I think maybe, I mean, my theory for what it's worth is that the polls are just not really capturing that. Because number one, young people don't, you know, they don't have landlines. They're probably not responding to a lot of polls, whatever. And also these pollsters try to model what they think the electorate is going to be like. And it, it must be the case that their models, whether it was wrong in one direction in 2016 or wrong in the other direction in 2020, they just have broken down yeah. where they're not mm -hmm. able to accurately predict who is going to show up and what the electorate is actually going to look like. And I think based on the results that we've seen that, you know, things are probably understating where, you know, Democratic support at this point, and that's only going to become it's the gap is only going to become larger if you have Trump going through trials, Trump being found guilty, Trump facing prison time, et cetera. When we did our focus group with break, breaking points of Republican voters in New Hampshire, you know, they were partisan Republicans, many of whom like Donald Trump and a few of the ones who are favorable towards Trump when we were like, OK, what if he's in prison? When the moderator asked them that, they were like, no, like, how can I can't? How is how does that it just even like, work? Does not compute. Yeah, yeah, it was just like a normie reaction of like, I can't vote for a guy who's in prison. I don't care if I like him or hate him or what. I can't vote for a dude who's in prison. So I do think there's a lot of that. Definitely. All right. So now we got to talk about this new Biden news. Um, so we just got word that the Biden administration is reversing course and clearing way for a new border wall on the southern border. And what they're doing is they have to waive uh, more than a dozen federal laws regarding environmental stuff in order to do this. Um, the Department of Homeland Security announced the plan. And apparently what it, it's about 20 miles or so in Starr County, Texas. It's a particularly high traffic area where you're seeing a lot of migrants come in. And um, he's, he's moving forward with the uh, basically the Trump plan. So I, wow. I have a, a lot of thoughts on this. First yeah. of all. Um, there was video going all the way back to like the 1990s when Biden was at some dinner and he was asked about this and he said, well, you need some sort of like physical barrier at the, you know, at the Southern border. Mm. I think that was, it was either fencing or physical barrier. He said something, he didn't say wall, but he said like one of those two things. And I remember seeing that at the time of going, okay, like I'll put that in the old memory bank to, yeah. <laughs> to see when this pops up again. And then look, I'm actually not that surprised by this, particularly because, and you know, I bring this up all the time. For a very long time, uh, Biden's early time in office, he kept in place remain in Mexico. He kept in place Title 42. So these are all like Trump era policies to try to, you know, Title 42 is we have a pandemic. It's a national emergency. You don't get due process. We're going to kick your ass out. Remain in Mexico was the deal that was cut with the Mexican government where it's like, keep them there. Don't let them cross the border to come here. Yeah. So. In many ways, this is in the same spirit as how he's been on the border. But now you actually get a situation where they're like, we're going to build about 20 miles of a border wall. So there's a, a, so much stuff to point out. First of all, uh, will the media bring this up? 
and attack Biden in the same way they would attack Trump? <laughs> That's one question. Yeah. I don't think they will, even though they'll spend 17 hours talking about how old Joe Biden is and making it seem like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they'll attack him, but only on the narrow areas they want to attack well, him. And the hypocrisy will go in both directions. And that's because what, it's not like Fox News is going to be like, good job, Joe, you're building that's, the wall. See, that that's the what point we want forever. Like, Way to go. And go. you kept remaining in Mexico and you're basically doing the Trump policy. Like, they're not. it doesn't matter. what. And that's why Democrats are so stupid, too. Like, Obama did the same thing. He thought if he was, quote unquote, deporter in chief and deported more undocumented immigrants than any other president before him, then he would get credit and they'd be able to craft some, but that didn't happen. And it's the same thing here, like for all the brutality of uh, a lot of the Biden border policies. And usually what these barriers do is they don't really solve the problem. They just make the crossing more brutal and more deadly. And we've certainly seen that with what Texas Governor Greg uh, Abbott has been trying to do. They don't actually solve the problem. But, yeah, they think that by imposing a similar level of heartless, inhumane brutality that they're going to get credit from someone for, you know, for doing it. But it's not the way that it works. Yeah. Well, there's going to be there's some portion of the left, which is very, very comfortable going after Biden. In fact, there's some portion of the left that like literally only goes after Biden mm -hmm. and they do it more than go after Republicans. Yeah. I think that, that they'll have no problem going after him for sure. this yes. and pointing that out. But that's a relatively small uh, faction. I think I still I don't think like resistance liberals. I don't think they'll necessarily they go after Biden for this. Uh, like you said, the media, I, do, I think they'll just not really talk about it that much and certainly won't attack him over it. But then, like you said, on the Republican side, and it drove me crazy when I was reading all these articles that talked about how Title 42 is still in place. Remain in Mexico is still in place. They're deporting colossal numbers of people people. It drove me crazy that, like, in the same weeks, I would hear Ted Cruz say, like, open borders, Biden, like he's opening the borders. And you have all these Republican politicians saying the same thing. And it's like, like you said, they're never going to it doesn't matter what he does. If he said I'm building a border wall on the entire border, they still wouldn't be like, well, we agree on this one. And it's just like like the game is rigged in a very clear way, because like. You know, when Trump pardoned Alice Johnson, we all were honest and was like, that's great. Thank you. You pardoned Alice Johnson. Wonderful. When he did the first step back, we're like, great. This is awesome. Thank you for that. When we learned, hey, he's not, we're not going to be in TPP. It was like, okay, oh, awesome. Awesome. Like we were honest <laughs> about it all. Yeah. But in a way that you just don't see with with Fox News and with these Republican politicians. And that's going to drive me crazy, you know? And if anything, what they'll do is they might use this as a vessel to continue to attack him to be like, so I guess Trump was right. Maybe you need the original in there to do, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the the core issue is you have to deal with the reason people are coming with to start with, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, our brutal sanctions policy, uh, which remains in place, has not helped. That's a major exacerbating factor, although it's certainly not the only factor. War on drugs, another massive factor that drives, you know, both poverty and violence and causes people to want to flee their home countries, which is not an easy or pleasant thing to do and requires a lot of, you know, grave uh, danger and risk to those who are involved. So that's the most important piece is like stemming the causes. Climate crisis is also a huge contributor at this point in terms of, you know, drought and other extreme events making life unlivable and decimating the, the lives of farmers, et cetera. But that's obviously long and difficult and, you know, takes a lot. 
one of the fixes that should be a no-brainer is um, part of what happens is because there's such a massive backlog in terms of our immigration system and having these asylum cases adjudicated where, you know, you decide whether this person is a legitimate, like, asylum seeker or not. There's such a backlog because we don't have nearly enough judges. I mean, that should be something that that would be a way more positive, way more humane, way more in compliance with, like, international law and our own law to, to surge the number of judges, try to reduce that backlog. But instead, I feel like there's just this theater of brutality where it's like, oh, I have to be seen as being tough on this issue and trying to really go after these immigrants instead of actually dealing with um, with the underlying issues. Abs almost no one in the media is honest about the dynamics, whether they're covering for Biden or whether they're lying about what Biden is doing, et cetera. So it's very easy to criticize what's going on at the border, which is a genuine humanitarian catastrophe. There's no doubt about it. Much more difficult for anyone to to really, you know, care about solutions that are going to be um, reasonable and humane for the the human beings who are, are struggling and are involved in this. Yeah. So to your point, to, to put the cherry on top here, what are the actual solutions? That's the question. Yeah. You just laid them out. And the war on drugs, that's super important. Mm -hmm. If you basically put the cartels out of business, there's less of a reason for people to flee from cartel violence. Yeah. So if you legalize tax and regulate drugs, that helps us get closer to that. And the vicious sanctions that we have against various countries to the south of us. I mean, we know for sure that Venezuela, for example, a lot of people are fleeing because of, you know, the economy there and because of the, the tremendous sanctions that we've had against them for a very long time. And also our attempt to like coup Venezuela, which we did under Trump, which we sort of regularly have done. If you stop doing all that, that'll also help. Send an army of judges to the southern border. We need to, like, quadruple or quintuple the number, the number of judges to deal with it. Expedite the process after you have all those judges in place. Have some better facilities. And then be very clear. Have a humanitarian set of rules. Hey, here's the process. If you want to try to get asylum, you're going to get a hearing. It's going to be quick, but we're going to determine if you don't meet the bar. Yes, you'll be sent back. If you do, okay, welcome. But have a very clear humanitarian set of rules that are enforced that's the actual solution right. but it's not it's not sexy right it's also it's really nuanced and detailed and complex and it's not sexy so all you're going to get is you know conservatives who are like build even more of a wall and do the buoys in the in the river with freaking barbed wire and buzz saws attached to it which yeah, is what we horrible. saw not that long ago from yeah. governor abbott so uh it's a real shame and this uh, plan from Biden is a lose-lose because there will be some people on the left and some liberals who attack him over it, although most of them will stay silent. And it's not like any Republicans are going to give you credit for this anyway. And just morally, as a policy, it's just it's dumb anyway. Yeah, I yeah. agree with all of that. OK, so now um, final thing I wanted to talk uh, with you about here, Crystal. So in the UK, they just made a pretty bold move. So Rishi, how do you pronounce this guy's name? Rishi, Rishi Sunak. Sunak or Sunak? Sunak, I think. Sunak, okay. Rishi Sunak. He unveiled a crackdown on smoking and potentially vaping as well. In this article I have in front of me in the Daily Mail, they, they use uh, vaping. And so basically the idea is kids aged 14 and under will never be able to buy cigarettes under this new ban. So it's almost like a phased-in ban over time, and they discriminate based on age. Mm -hmm. So uh, here's what they say. Rishi Sunak today unveiled bold plans to stamp out the child vaping epidemic and ban kids under age 14, kids 14 and under from ever legally being able to buy cigarettes. The proposed law will annual. Uh, I can talk, I promise. The proposed law 
Oh, that's why there's a typo in here. It's not even my fault. It's the fault of the article. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The proposed law will annually raise the age of legal purchase of tobacco from the current 18 by one additional year every 12 months. Okay. So you understand how that works? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it will see England follow in the footsteps of New Zealand, which last year adopted a similar policy for everyone born after 2009. Under mm -hmm. the prime minister's proposed plan, the government will stick to the same age threshold. Think tanks and smoking rights groups, smoking rights groups, <laughs> reacted with anger to the ban, labeling, labeling it as, I like this because it's so contradictory, hideously illiberal and unconservative. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> illiberal and unconservative so it's you're saying it's not liberal and it's not conservative anyway the pm also announced a crackdown on vaping amongst children promising to look at banning child-friendly flavors okay child-friendly flavors mm -hmm. and packing and packaging that encourages kids to pick up the habit disposable devices are also on the firing line i think that one's more for like environmental reasons mm -hmm. less so about you know health yeah um, he announced the move during a speech at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, and he acknowledged it was a difficult decision to make, but he said it was the right decision to break the cycle of smoking addi uh, addiction. Quote, if we are able to do the right thing for our kids, we must try and stop teenagers taking up cigarettes in the first place. Four and five smokers started by the time they were 20. The Later, the vast majority tried to quit but failed because they're addicted. Um, I propose we raise the smoking age by one year every year. That means a 14-year-old today will never legally... Uh, never legally will be sold a cigarette and their generation will grow up smoke free. And then he goes on to point out that like, Hey man, look, we get it that, um, it's very difficult whenever you come to a, uh, come to a decision that like you want to restrict freedom. So I, I don't, I, I don't take this decision lightly, but nevertheless, it's the decision that I'm going to make. So he literally brought up freedom yeah. to sort of like swat it aside. Um, and then a YouGov survey last year showed 57% of Brits supported the progressive age-based ban. Hmm. I think that is very different from our country. Yeah, I think we would have a really yes. negative reaction against it. That is very different from our country. Yeah. So let me just ask you, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, it? listen, I think drugs should be legalized. So obviously I think a complete ban on cigarettes or vaping or whatever is way too far. I mean, I think adults should be able to make decisions for themselves. I don't think they should be manipulated. Like I'm fine with, you know, bans on advertising, especially advertising to kids. I'm more open to some of the like, the flavor thing. We, I think we've had debates about that before. I'm more open to some of those things, but just an outright ban. No, of course I don't support that. Yeah. I, I agree with you. There actually is a middle ground. It's not so black and white. You know what I mean? And the middle ground is like you pointed out, okay, you're banned from doing ads on TV, right? You know, like you, you, <laughs> you can't can have, have them, you know, ads in schools and <laughs> right. like around playgrounds or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm even open to the idea of like, look, we're going to, we're going to this stuff is going to be legal, but we're going to do health and safety regulations that might change a little bit the nature of what you're having. So if there's like some sort of a vape product or whatever, that it's like 10 percent nicotine, which is very high percentage of yeah. nicotine. It's like, no, we're going to cap it at five. Like, I'm OK with that. And it's got to be like everything's got to be really disclosed and yeah, regulated so people actually know about the health impacts. I'm fine with like public education campaigns. I'm fine with taxes that make it more expensive. Even. 100 percent agree. So there is a middle ground. Yeah. The middle ground is like, look, we're all going to acknowledge because we're not idiots that the smoking is really not good for you. And there, here there's all these rules around you can only have x amount of nicotine which by the way nicotine isn't really a problem in cigarettes it's, uh, there's like 300 other carcinogens it's ridiculous but like 
limit the the types of and then like if if there was cyanide in cigarettes everybody'd be like can you get that part you know what i'm saying can you get that out <laughs> yeah but if it's something that kills you over 50 years it's like well that's fine no i get the idea of like sort of limiting the damage by doing health regulations mm -hmm. but still effectively having it legal and this is not that and i think what drives me crazy about this is like i hate it when governments are like they act like i'm gonna be very altruistic towards you and i'm going to help you how by telling you don't do that thing it's like no if you're the government like provide some don't take away you provide something now in the uk of course they have universal health care so it's a little bit of a different right conversation right true but like in my mind it's like oh really you want to help me okay well cut me a ubi check of a thousand dollars a month or whatever it is not like i'm gonna help you here let me take that away i'm not allowed to have this right it's very like paternalistic it's very like smug and condescending and arrogant. And it's like, even if you're right on the substance that this thing is not good, do people know that? It's like, they know that. They're like, yeah, I know it's not good, but I'm choosing to, in the same way, alcohol is way worse than most of the things that we try to ban or regulate. Right? There's, yeah, there's this whole also in the American right. I can't speak specifically to Rishi Sunak's ideology um, very uh, adequately, but in the American right, there's this whole thing about like concern for the children, right? Around right. like mm -hmm. trans issues and about um, video games and social media and whatever. And yet you're going to just let the child tax credit expire. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and yet even after, remember, there was this like minute of conversation after Roe was overturned where it's like, oh, now conservatives are going to have to make good on their promises about like taking care of children. Please. None of that. None of that. So, yeah, it's all they're very comfortable with the like authoritarian solutions. Yes. Of, let me ban. Let I'm me lock down. You. You're not going to be allowed to be on TikTok or social media. Like oh, there are a lot of states right now, Republican states that are experimenting with absolute lockdowns on social media for kids below a certain age. So they're comfortable with that. Not so much interested in like, let me make sure that your family isn't starving so that you can have a nutritious right. meal and that your schools are funded so that you get a good education. Not so much interested in that. Exactly. It's like the shortcut to feel goodism, you know, like I did something good by stopping you from doing something. Right. Like, come on. Yeah, like, that's, I don't like that. The last point I would make is the things that you were talking about, some of which have been implemented in the U.S. in terms of like health regulations and whatever around cigarettes. Like it's worked. Youth Very smoking successful. has dramatically declined. Now, well, vaping might be another thing. Well, I, I, but youth there's smoking be a crackdown. is, yeah, youth cigarettes are way, cigarette use is way, way down from when I was a teenager, from when you were a teenager. So it's not like these things don't work. They actually do. Yeah. And there, I think there's going to be a crackdown at some point on, on vaping. vaping. And I think what they'll do is a similar path where it's like, just get rid of all the fruity flavors, you know, and then eventually it's like even get rid of all the mint and the menthol flavors. Eventually it'll just be like some... Yeah, horrendous like tobacco flavored thing that tastes like somebody's grandpa's ass cheese. <laughs> Are you still gonna vape with grandpa's ass cheese? Yes. <laughs> it's not gonna yes, stop I you. will. Grandpa, <laughs> bring him, bring him over here. <laughs> All right then, let's go ahead and bring in our guest. <laughs> great entrance, I love it. Former Bernie Sanders campaign co-chair and uh, founder of a great new organization to support striking workers, the one and only Senator Nina Turner. Senator Nina Turner, always great to see you. Great to be here with you, Crystal and Kyle. So congrats on the new organization. Uh, we are somebody very excited to see this launch. So just tell us what it's going to do and what inspired you. 
Well, thank you. I am excited as well. You know, I definitely have been thinking over the last few years uh, what else I can do. I mean, I went through two brutal congressional races, as we know. I've been on two presidential races. And I'm thinking, though, the needs that animated both my candidacy and the 2016 and 2020 race in terms of Senator Bernie Sanders still remains the same. And so I watched closely what was happening to the coal miners in Alabama, uh, the meth, they worked at that uh, meth facility and just to see that they were on strike for almost 200 or two years, 600 days really inspired me. And I watched as they, you know, pushed really hard for better wages, work conditions, and trying to win back what they had given up in 2016. And that did not materialize for them. And they were able to hold the line, almost a thousand of them, for almost two years because they had a robust strike fund. And mm. it got me to think, what if we had that type of robust strike fund in a nonprofit capacity that could work across the houses of labor? And when I say the houses of labor, I'm also making reference to non-unionized people as well, because as we know, the vast majority of workers are not in the union, but we need to have a type of worker solidarity. And so that is really how we are. Somebody was born. I've been working on this for at least uh, almost eight months now. And I, I'm, she's been revealed as of yesterday. So um, for We Are Somebody, ex explain to me a little bit uh, more how it works. So is it going to go like we got the UAW strike going on right now? Uh, we've seen the rise of the Amazon labor union and, of course, the Starbucks union and all that stuff. Uh, how will you determine what the best use of the money is in terms of does it go to these workers? Does it go to, like you said, the the honestly, the workers without the union almost need help more in a sense because they don't have a union. So how, how exactly are you going to determine uh, where to uh, distribute the funds? Well, the first major project that we're going to take on is a partnership with the Amazon uh, Labor Union led by the one and only uh, Christian Smalls. And as you know, they are a union, but they're having a hard time. They can't collect dues and they do need help. They need help not only from organizations like We Are Somebody, but they also need help from more seasoned labor uh, leaders and labor organizations as well. And so we're going to partner with them to help them raise some funds. We're also going to work to try to build coalition between them and other houses of labor to have more robust funding to, to help them. On the other hand, other things that we will do is to help to amplify the voices of those in the House of Labor, both union and non-union. One fair wage comes to mind that I know both of you are familiar with, led by wonderful uh, Saru. That, and she's working very hard to do away or to eradicate the sub-minimum wage. In my conversations with her, and she's very supportive of this, she said if we are somebody was at full capacity, full funded capacity, that that would give workers, restaurant workers, uh, more ability to really stand up uh, to the corporations that really refuse to pay them the living wage that they deserve. So it will be money-based, but it also will be amplification. So I think of it this way, amplify organize and fund. And it would be based on what those labor unions say that they need the most from us. So not just us going in saying, dictating to them what they need, but to really ask them what do they need most from us.
I love the idea that you're not only backing up union workers, but that you'll be allied to all of labor. Uh, and as Kyle said, you know, in a lot of ways, those non-union workers need the most support. And a lot of industries like restaurant workers have been historically very difficult to unionize, not only because of the ta tactics of the bosses, but just the nature of uh, labor law in this country that you have to go shop by shop. And it's sort of a Herculean effort. Um, what made you decide to go in this direction? versus another, you know, electoral politics play, whether it's you running again or supporting another candidate or building a pact to support candidates, what made you decide to go this way? Well, thank you for that question, Crystal. And not that my running again is still very much on the table, but for now, I feel like my skill set and my cachet can be best used in this space. And it is because we need some material conditions changed in real time. There are mm. multiple organizations out there helping candidates, and I thank God for them because I was one of those candidates that they have helped along the way. But if we simply wait for great candidates to be elected, we're going to be waiting for a very long time, as we can see what is happening in the Congressional Progressive Caucus right now, who I consider just a gentler version of the neoliberal caucus. But I digress. You didn't ask me that. I, the, <laughs> I want to see... I want this move, not just people identify as the progressives. I want to, I want working class people. I want people of this country to see that the power is in their hands. And one of the best ways to do that is to pick issues and causes where we collectively control the win versus waiting on some elected official or group of elected officials to control the win. And that's very hard to do because unless you have a Congress that's willing to cooperate or a legislature willing to cooperate or an executive that is willing to, to, to push it, it is hard. So other groups are working in those spaces and God bless them and there may be some cross-pollination there. But I think in this resurgence of the labor movement, broadly speaking, is the space where we can bring the most people together, regardless of political ideology, and we can get real-time wins. I've never seen, in my lifetime certainly, I've never seen uh, anything like this with the resurgence of labor. And when I look at, for example, how Sean Fain is leading the UAW and the fact that he's making these demands, hey, we want a four-day work week, we want a 46% pay increase. And he was asked, like, oh, would you compromise and take 30? And he was like, no. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and he's got, you know, he's going on CNBC and CNN, and he is not holding back even a little bit. Do you feel like the times have now officially changed, at least insofar as... Uh, you know, previous uh, union leadership was somewhat in board with management and wasn't aggressive and wasn't militant. Is it your sense that now uh, with seeing, a, you know, some movement in the direction of more militant leaders, that this trend is going to continue and it's going to snowball and we're going to have a labor movement that has more teeth than we've seen in our lifetimes? Kyle, that is my hope and my prayer. Absolutely. <laughs> and I don't know, President Fain might not know this, but he is one of my many spirit animals. Let me yes. tell you. <laughs> I can't wait. And I have not met him in person right now, but let me just go ahead and say it right here. Hey, cannot wait to be side by side with him. I really, 
labor, so too many labor leaders roll over real quick. And I like the way that President Sean Fain made it clear. We're not endorsing anybody. And you got to pick a side. You got to tell me whose side you are on. Either you're on the billionaire side or you're on the side of the people, but you can't be on both. And I'm thinking, is that me talking? You know, I, I heard myself. <laughs> I've been that you have to pick a side. And one of my dear friends, she has this saying, she said, pick a side or step aside. And that really is what President Sean Fain, and I think his, his courage on full display with the backing of his members, because he's not doing this by himself, he has the full force and weight of his members, is really showing other labor leaders how it can be done. We got to stop capitulating on things of significant moral importance. And it is morally important that workers in this country across the spectrum make a living wage. Why are we acting like that, that that's, workers are asking for too much or reaching too high or being unreasonable? So directly answering your question, Kyle, absolutely, this level of, I mean, some people might call it militancy. I call it uh, actions whose time have come because mm. workers have up so much. The UAW workers gave up a lot. I'm old enough to remember in 2008 how we, the taxpayers of the United States of America, bailed out the auto industry and the big three have the pure unadulterated gall not to negotiate with these workers in good faith. They gave up a lot. And now it's time for these corporations making record profits to do the same. They're not even being asked to give up anything if we look at it. They're being asked to share in the bounty with the workers who help make it so. So I do hope that this fever pitch that, that Sean Fain and others, you know, Christian Smalls is an example of that. No, he doesn't have 445,000, you know, members, but he is an example of somebody who has stepped up to say we're not going to take it anymore and going against the norms. And other labor leaders need to get a clue. Supporting elected officials is transactional and they need to be asked what are they going to do to power to ensure that working class people in this country don't continue to get left behind where's the pro act democrats could have been past that republicans talk a lot about family values but yet they don't want to pay families enough you know they don't want to support policies that will pay families enough to live a good life so it's time to call out all these elected folks which is another reason i mean crystal and Kyle, the reason why we are somebody exists is to help in that realm to be a juggernaut, to be a force. The goal is to raise multi-millions of dollars to be able to help workers leverage. When I was talking about the warrior meth um, coal miners, you know, they ended up going back on the job without, they didn't win anything, even though they made great sacrifices. And you know why they didn't win? Because the, the corporatists waited them out. And so even mm -hmm. though they did have a robust strike fund at some point, even a robust strike fund runs out. Uh, uh, spirits were low. You know, all the things that you need to keep people pumped up to stay on the line. They did not have enough leverage when all was said and done. And so we are somebody aims to give working class people more leverage or to complement the leverage that they already have so that they feel empowered to keep on keeping on. Why do you think that we are seeing this moment 
in labor where, you know, it's not just Sean Fain and UAW. You had the actors, you had the writers, you had the UPS workers, and you had Kaiser the, Permanente. That's Kaiser just Pro, happening yeah, right now. largest um, healthcare strike in U.S. history happening right now. Um, it looks like the culinary workers in Vegas may be heading out on strike. You have all of these grassroots um, organizing drives, new unionization. I mean, let's be clear, there's still a very long way to go. These are just like the nascent, exciting sparks that we're seeing. But why now? Why do you think that this is coming at this moment? I think, you know, in the words of the great Fannie Lou Hamer, people really are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it is a confluence of things. I really do believe that the genesis of the 21st century progressive movement is very much connected to what we're seeing now. None of these things are happening in a in the vacuum, but it is a swirling, if you will. It is a synergy that has grabbed hold, and we see it more profoundly or in a pronounced form through a labor. The, the pandemic, I think, is adding to this because people are dismayed and, and realize how hard that pandemic hit them. And no yeah. matter what the um, kind of macro numbers may say, we know that on a macro level, they, inflation is ticking, ticking down a little, and I use the word ticking down very lightly. We know they say that the numbers show that unemployment has gone down. But what does that mean to Big Mama and to, to Big Papa and hoods all over this country, whether they're rural, urban, or suburban hoods? It doesn't mean a lot to them because their material conditions have gone unchanged. They are still being strangled by an economy that does not work for them. They constantly have to work more than one job. You know, in my grandparents' era, and probably maybe in my parents' era to some extent, having a side hustle was just that. It was really extra money. Now you got to have a full-time job and about four or five side hustles just to make ends meet. That is not how it should work. And I want the American people, no matter where they fall on the spectrum of workers, because some, some workers, some of us are in six figures, some are in the, in the middle, some are at the bottom of that. But when all is said and done, we are only one major incident away from being totally equal. We are closer to people who are homeless than we are to any multimillionaire or people in the billionaire class. And so we have to see ourselves in each other, whether it's a UAW worker, whether it's nurses or doctors or teachers, whether it's minors, you name it, we are together. And so this resurgence is because the pressure that has been brought to bear on everyday people in this country is, is, is peaking to the top. And so we're seeing that be displayed, like the dismay being displayed through labor action. Yeah, as Crystal likes to point out, during COVID, we had an expansion of uh, the social safety net where, you know, you had extended unemployment insurance, you had the child tax credit, you had the earned income tax credit, you had all these things which were like a temporary measure during the pandemic that actually made it so that, and if you look at the data, it's astonishing, like child poverty, for example, was reduced by nearly half as a result of the measures that they took. And so people at the bottom rung of the ladder were like, I'm doing better than I have been in a long time. And then Biden's biggest mistake, and along with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and the rest of them, is they sort of, they let those sunset and they didn't re-up them at all. And so overnight we saw an increase in that child poverty rate of nearly 
50%. And so to your point, Nina, yeah, you see the, this macro stuff where it's like, well, hey, uh, inflation is coming down and the unemployment rate is very low. But you pair that with, you know, 70 or 80% of Americans basically living paycheck to paycheck and being unable to afford an emergency. And you pair that with this social safety net effectively being gutted in a way that leaves people worse off now than they were before. I mean, you only have 30 something percent of Americans saying, you know, I think the economy is good. And you know, I, maybe that is one of the things, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. Maybe that's one of the things that is leading workers to say, like, hey, nobody's going to come save us but us. And so we got to collectively bargain. We got to organize so that we can have more sway in the negotiation in the room. That's it, Kyle. I've, I've said I've made this, you know, this statement that the political uh, politicians are not coming to save workers. Workers are going to have to save themselves. And just listening to you frame this just made me think about, and I think President FDR said these words in one of his states of the unions uh, in the 40s, um, but don't hold me to that, but this is definitely FDR. And he made it clear that men of necessity, I think he said necessitous men are not free. Now our mm. 21st century version of that would be necessitous people are not free. I mean, he was using men in a, in a very global way. It, that is so true. It was true when he said it, and it's just as true today. You cannot say let freedom ring when, when people can't afford their prescription drugs that they need to live. You can't say let freedom ring when you didn't snatch the, sa the safety net of providing child care, and now hundreds of thousands of children are going to be without child care because they snatched that away. You can't say let freedom ring, to your point, Kyle, when you had the enhanced child tax credit, but you let that expire. You can't say let freedom ring when thousands of people, no, millions of people in terms of Medi Medicaid, the, the same things that you gave them during the COVID to shore people up, you let those kinds of things go away. You can't let say let freedom ring when on a bipartisan way, the Congress always finds the way to enhance the military industrial complex, but yet y'all can't pass the PRO Act. You can't set, say let freedom ring when people are suffering at the hands of an economic machine, an economic structure that is immoral on its face. You can't say you're going to let freedom ring when they know good and well that the rules of the game as they have set them can be reset, that none of this stuff is finite, it can be changed, but yet you refuse to change it. So the level of hypocrisy that is, you know, so thick, you can cut it. Yeah, workers and I think everyday Americans, whether they identify with the House of Labor or not, are feeling those pressures and they are disappointed. They are discouraged by it. And it is immoral. I'm putting it there. I know sometimes uh, in politics, people don't like to talk about what's moral and what's immoral. When you allow working class people, people in this country to languish in a hegemonic nation, it is, in fact, immoral. And again, we are seeing that reflection. I see the labor movement resurgence as a clear reflection of all that could be right in this country, but also all that is wrong with this country as well. You know, my theory of part of why you're having this resurgence right now is directly because of the experience of the pandemic. I mean, you had all this rhetoric about, oh, these workers are essential and we need them and they're so important. And on the other hand, you saw bosses like literally willing to let people die for profit. 
um, or unceremoniously kick people out of their jobs, you know, in spite of the rhetoric about them being essential and so important, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't getting pay raises. They weren't getting the safety precautions they need. That was part of what led Pr Christian Smalls to become the radical that he became. And so I do think it comes directly out of that experience. And that's part of why you see overwhelming numbers that we've never seen in our life in favor of, you know, just remember back in 2010, you know, there's that whole moment with like Scott Walker and there was all of this, the, the beating heart of the Republican party was anti-union energy. And that wasn't just from the top, that was the way the base felt about it too. Now you have a majority of Republicans who are siding with United Auto Workers, majorities who are in favor of unions who think that they're beneficial for the economy. What do you make of that shift in terms of the just like overwhelming bipartisan support now for labor rights? Again, an idea whose time has come. I mean, when you are suffering, at some point you got to make a decision. Are you going to continue to languish in this suffering or are you going to call it what it is? And that is why this labor solidarity, to your point about this bipartisanship among workers, is the best way to go. Because no matter if, you know, whether it's UAW worker, Amazon workers, nurses, teachers, we know everybody doesn't rock the same way politically. So you're going to have Clintonites working with Bidenites, working with Sanderites, working with Obamaites, I mean, you name it, all, all the folks, Trumpites, all of those. But what they do have in common across the political spectrum is the fact that they are not getting what they deserve in the workplace. And so they're going to throw out uh, their political affiliation for their affiliation and solidarity as working class. Yeah. This is a prime example and a prime opportunity, Crystal, to really bring people together based on what they have in common. And it is indeed a beautiful thing. And so how can we catapult this moment into something that is much more lasting and much deeper in that we will continue to have solidarity on the things that matter absolutely the most and people's livelihoods matter absolutely the most and be willing to put political ideology aside. This labor resurgence is the best way if we have any opportunity to do it. It is using this vehicle to do it. Well, that leads actually to my next question, which is a part. I mean, I think I get annoying to people by how obsessed with the labor movement is I am and how much I focus on it and think these, you know, small incremental changes like really could mean something. Um, but one of my hopes is that it does actually improve the nature of our politics, because, you know, part of what forced FDR into uh, a level of greatness and helped to forge the New Deal. It wasn't just this one man being amazing, even though he had plenty of problems, too. It was under pressure from a you know large organized labor movement. Those pressures are helped to for what are what helped to create the New Deal and those circumstances that you know lasted across parties for many decades. So I'm also hopeful that if you have a resurgence in union density, you have a genuine resurgence in the labor movement. They no longer just accept lip service from the political class, but are actually demanding real gains in favor of working people's interests, that you could help to shift our whole political system in a better direction under the force of that pressure. I get chills just hearing you speak those words, Crystal. Absolutely. Aesop Philip Randolph came to mind when you were talking about forcing President FDR. And yes, he had his problems, but we'll save that for another, another day. Asa Philip Randolph, uh, leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, one of the greatest unionists of the 20, 20th century, was one of those pressure points. Um, I think about his leadership in a budget that many of your viewers and listeners may not have heard of, which is the Freedom Budget. The Freedom Budget 
was a foundational point that Asa Philip Randolph was the brain, he was the brain trust of, but one of his motivating factors to think of a budget of that way, and this was in the 60s, uh, late 50s going into the early 60s, was coming from uh, FDR's uh, proclamation of freedom from war, you know, all the, the, the four freedoms. And so Asa Philip Randolph got together with a whole bunch of other leaders. I think he got about 150 people, leaders from different backgrounds and walks of life when all was said and done to sign on to this. People who would not ordinarily agree on every single point, but they came together on this and they said that we need a people's budget a type of budgeting in the United States of America that would help people have freedom from want. And on the list, you know, like the summary list of it, it was, you know, jobs, it was education, it was health care. I mean, all of these things, right, sound very familiar to us. And so absolutely, that having that kind of vision then is the similar kind of vision that we have now. We would just put some 21st century framing on it. But none of the things that we are fighting for or working towards are new. All of these things are connected to both people who are still walking the face of this earth. Because a lot of times when we talk about the past, we think that there are not people still here who actually were part of the so-called past. It's not really much in the past. And then people who have gone on to this ancestral plane, they have been fighting for this kind of liberation, uh, the ability for people to live a good life for a very long time. So, Crystal, yeah, I'm hoping that is what happens for a long time, a long term. And yeah, we are somebody who's going to continue to be on the front lines of that fight. One of the things that's been amazing to me is that like when when the Biden administration announced the increase in the overtime pay and when they announced that new rule, which you love, the one that made it so that um, if a boss union busts, the union is just recognized immediately. Uh, you had all like the, the resistance liberal types, the Biden supporters were like, yes, this is great, which I was like, whoa, these are people who would have been defending Bill Clinton seven minutes ago or would have right, been defending Barack Obama. And it's like, this is different from that. So for them to go along with it, I was like, good. But then the other thing is Ben Shapiro did a segment on the UAW and the strike and you were going through the comment section. And in Ben Shapiro's own viewers who are not at all liberal, not at all leftist, they're significantly to the right. His own viewers were going after him because he was dumping on the UAW and they were like, no, this is absolutely necessary, and it's about time these workers got what they were owed. And One so, of the comments was literally, I'd love to see you get so ex upset about executive pay yeah, as you do the right. auto worker pay. Yeah, and these are, again, <laughs> these are, nobody's liberals or leftists. These are, like, right-wingers. And so that fact, you know, makes me happy. I mean, also with the fact that, I mean— Trump was lying and he put on a show. He pretended like he was going to talk to union workers. They actually weren't union workers at all. They had these, you know, union workers for Trump signs that weren't union made. It was all very, it was all very mirror world, insane, weird. But the fact that he felt like I have to try to go pander to workers, you know, as Biden walked the picket line, Marianne Williamson walked the picket Shows line, Cornell West walked the picket line. Tomorrow you're going to a UAW shop. Like, to me, that's it. Oh, this political reality has shifted massively. Because like you said, back when uh, Obama was in office, it felt like it was the opposite. Like, oh, union workers. It's like they want to be lazy and just get paid for nothing. And now everybody realizes like, no, this we we need unions. Well, we think, need them. I mean, think about historic. I mean, Biden was a very conservative, obviously, senator. And um, 
Obama was president during that era of the what was going on in Wisconsin, whatever. Activists really wanted him to come in and take a side, and he he wouldn't do it. He'd have nothing to do with it. So for Joe Biden, who again, it's not like his record reflects any sort of real like left solidarity, to be under pressure and feel like the right thing politically, optically to do would be to go to this picket line. I think shows you the way that the politics of the country have just wildly shifted on this. Yeah, I mean, he was forced to do it. Speaking about force, we were talking about FDR being forced. He was definitely forced to do it. Yeah, and I think again, so. A lot to do with not only Sean Fain. I mean, when we talk about Sean Fain, we're talking to talking about him as a symbolic representation of a bigger fight. But it was, and let me just say, and it's not a but. And Sean Fain made it very clear we're not endorsing anybody. We, you know, and, I, and I'm sure he heard, I'm sure he got calls and text messages and emails like, man, what you doing? You going to empower Trump? Oh, no, we're not endorsing anybody. That's powerful, where most of the houses of labor have already endorsed the current president. Sean Fain, like, oh, no, oh, no, I'm not endorsing you. So he was forced to go on that. And that's a beautiful thing. Kyle, the point that you made about President Donald J. Trump, Trump is just Trumping. I mean, that's just what he does. Full populism at its finest. That is what he is good at. I will say about those workers, though, and, and you thank you for bringing that because you helped him make it a point. He did not go to a union shop because we know he's full of it. Yep. And those workers do deserve to have living wages. Like for oh, me, if we are somebody, it doesn't bother me that they're not union work. What bothers me is that President Donald J. Trump lied, but I'm put that in the parking lot. If we focus in on those workers, they deserve attention to be brought to them too because they are in the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the personhood of the family of workers across the board. Yeah. And so centering them is most important here because I heard some rumblings, you know, because the House of Labor can be a little elitist sometimes. And so we are somebody again, aims to be that bridge and not only amplifying the, the stories and the voices of workers who are on the front lines of strikes, but also amplifying and lifting the voices of workers across the board. And one of the things I want the House of Labor to understand is that they are no better than people who are not unionized. As a matter of fact, those are their allies. They just don't have a union. And so often we can be caught up in the whole notion of where I'm better than you because. And that, you know, the, the House of Labor is not above that. As we know, the House of Labor also has a uh, not so good history when it comes to race, race relations as well and, ha and how it dealt with African-Americans uh, primarily because when we talk about issues of race, we know the center mark of that is how those uh, descendants of enslaved people were treated or mistreated in this country. And the House of Labor has a lot to atone there because the House of Labor is, quite frankly, a reflection of larger society. Yeah, no, there's um, no doubt about it. I mean, with the auto workers, part of what is so powerful about what they're doing is obviously, you know, their focus is on their jobs, their livelihoods, their wages, their cost of living increases, work week, life balance, all that stuff. But when we had historically higher union density and a stronger labor movement, it wasn't just about what those wage gains meant for those workers. It's what they would do to lift the entire industry. And I think especially in the auto industry, there's a lot of opportunity for that. The gentleman we spoke with um, today on Breaking Points, who's a 40-year UAW member, you know, he was very focused on this is about the American working class. It's not just about us. This is a fight for everyone to lift the floor for absolutely everybody because 
you know, if you're a Tesla worker. That's why Elon was flipping out over this. If you're a Tesla worker. Because he's like, now my workers are going to demand more. Yeah, of course. And you're seeing, and he actually had to give them a raise recently. Really? And Amazon was forced to give a raise recently because of some of this union organizing that's going on. So it ends up not just being about, you know, the workers who are in a union shop. At its finest, when when it's powerful, the union movement really lifts boats all across the country in all industries. That is the legacy of it. And and that was one of the examples I was going to give. So thanks for being in my head. Yeah, Tesla didn't want none of that. They did not want none of that. So they tried to preempt it by giving raises. And so it is, it behooves us all to see the benefit of of workers or workers and labor unions when they rise up, everybody rises up. And it also made me think of, you know, Chris, when you talked about 2010, you know, 2011, you know, you remember, and I'm sure Kyle does too, in Ohio, we were beaten back a right to work, you know, right to work, and had to put a referendum on the ballot to Republicans did, and Big Eddie, Ed Schultz, God rest his soul, you know, was on on the front lines on that, as as were many of others, but giving voice, helping to give or amplify the voices of working people. And I was in the Ohio Senate at that time, and to have a Republican majority do what they did, but then also in Ohio, unlike Wisconsin, uh, to be able to have the ability to put it on the ballot and what it took to win by over 60% to slap the Republican-controlled legislature at the time that, well, hell, it's still Republican control. What am I talking about? <laughs> Slap down the Republican control legislature and let them know, oh, no, you overreaching here by over 60%. Well, guess what? That took non-union households to buy into that and to see themselves in solidarity as working class people. So we did it there. We see this happening time and time again. Again, it is the bright light to, to solidarity uh, in this country. I really do believe it. And again, as another Ace of Philip Randolph, because he's speaking to me right now when he said mm-hmm. freedom is not given, it is won. And that is what we're having time and time again, these workers showing that they can win when they stick together. Speak, speaking of solidarity, I'm reminded of the Bill Maher and Drew Barrymore thing mm-hmm. where they announced they were going to come back without their writers. And then everybody on the planet was like, screw you. And then they had to back off as a result of it. And you told me this before, but Drew Barrymore's writers, now that the strike is over, they were like, we're not coming to work for you now. We're gone. <laughs> we're moving on. We're gone. And I thought that was amazing because yeah. it really shows like the power of, of solidarity and unity. Yeah, that you could even sure. even the smuggest man on this the planet, was, Bill Maher, had to be like, all right, all right, I back this down. Was a, this was some like internet cancel culture I could get behind. Yeah, L- let's shame sure. these people for, for what sure. they're doing crossing the picket line. So, <laughs> Nina, let me. This, this is my last question for you. So, Jenk uh, Uger recently came on Breaking Points, yeah. and he basically I, he didn't say he's running for president, but he almost said he's running for president. And he like strongly implied it. Oh, I'm looking at staffing up type stuff or whatever. And then I know you have been teasing a big announcement for a while. Now we know it's. We are somebody. It's a phenomenal strike fund. Everybody definitely check that out. But there were a lot of people who were thinking, oh, my God, maybe it's actually going to be a Jank Uger, Nina Turner ticket, probably with Nina on the top because Nina is an American citizen completely. Jank is a naturalized citizen, which, you know, he thinks he still has a right to run, but the courts might say something else. It's complicated. It's complicated. The, you know, the Constitution seems to imply if you're a naturalized citizen, you can't run, but he seems to think I could override that, whatever. But either way, it could have been a Jank Uger, Nina Turner ticket or a Nina Turner, Jank Uger ticket. Number one, did you see the speculation on that? Number two, did you thoroughly enjoy it? 
As in yes. <laughs> yes, I did. And I have nothing but love for Jank and TYT and what they have uh, done and, and how, you know, as independent media goes, uh, really been the standard bearers out there pushing it. Uh, yeah, and, and I get it all the time. I mean, people definitely have reached out to me to let me know that they're happy and disappointed at the same time because people <laughs> see me running, you know, and they just knew I was going to announce running for president. I got the same thing about, oh, we thought you were going to join Dr. Cornell West or just run your own race. And I, I respect and appreciate that because I know it's not everybody that gets that you should run for president. And I hear it all the time. I've been hearing it for years. I still hear it. It has not dissipated. And it's a hot honor for me to hear that from people from all walks of life, all backgrounds. I mean, even when I was walking through my own airport, Cleveland Hopkins, to come to uh, Green Bay, the same thing. People just stopping me saying, we love you. Thank you for standing up for us. We were hoping you're going to run. We're happy about this. So what I would say to those people is that this is my focus for now. But that does not mean that I will not run again. It doesn't. <laughs> Okay, I like that. I like that answer. Door's not closed. That's right. Yeah, that's fair. I like that. I Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. We'll give our love to uh, Professor Harvey J.K. there in Green Bay. Certainly give our love and solidarity to all the striking auto workers that you're going to be um, meeting with. And um, Where tell can people, people, yeah. Yeah, uh, tell people how they can uh, contribute to the fund. Thank you. And I will give my your love, both of your loves to Professor Harvey K. He shouted you both out, loves you. And I want to lift up local 573 in Streetsboro, Ohio. I went to be with them, and that's a parts uh, parts plant in uh, the greater Cleveland area. I want to lift them up uh, as well. And I went, I went with, I went to be with them about two weeks ago when they walked off. And I know that they're still standing up and doing the thing. And now to be able to go to a sister parts plant uh, here in Wisconsin. Um, people can find us, so they should go to wearesomebody.org if you want to find out more about the organization, if you want to find out how you can help. Again, the goal is to build a robust strike fund to help workers. We're calling it a strike fund, but it can also go to help and complement other workers who may not necessarily be unionized. Again, one of our first major projects will be working with Amazon Labor Union with the one and only Christian Smalls. But please go to wearesomebody.org, and they can follow me on Twitter, at Nina Turner, on Instagram, and Facebook, Nina Turner, Ohio. Do not sit on the sidelines. This is an opportunity for us to get real-time wins and change real conditions, uh, material conditions in real time. So come on, we are somebody. All of us are somebody. Well, solidarity, you know, we love what yeah. you're doing. We love you. And, Absolutely. Uh, we'll I, think it's, I think it's a, a wonderful, wonderful use of your extraordinary talents. And, you know, as important as electoral politics are, and they are, to me, this is this is really the front lines of the fight right now. And you clearly recognize that. And so I couldn't be more thrilled um, to see you headed in this direction. Thank you. And I definitely love you both. And please have me back anytime to talk about any topic. Thank you both for what you using your skills and your abilities to do. You are shaking it up. And we <laughs> our, pre our pleasure. Thank you, Nina. All right. That was the awesome Senator Nina Turner. Mm -hmm. uh, I enjoyed that very much. Um, to, to Sean Fain, because we were talking quite a bit about him in there. Yeah. And the way he handled, I want to stress this point, the way he handled uh, the political landscape, I thought was brilliant. I mean, obviously, oh, I agree with his... Um, his strategy as as the head of the UAW, I think he's very smart in terms of the way he structured the strike where it's like, you know, uh, we're going to key plants. We're going to, you know, have them strike and then we'll we, we can unleash the hounds of hell. The more time goes on yeah. if, if they're not meeting our demands, et cetera. But 
the way he handled the national political landscape, I think, was brilliant because he went on CNN. He was asked about Trump and he did not mince words. He was basically like, the guy's a fraud. The guy's yeah. a con man. The guy's a billionaire. He's part of the billionaire class that we're railing against. Um, and he gave three specific examples of like when he was president, here's how he screwed us. Here's how it was unacceptable. So no, I'm not going to meet him because there's nothing to talk about. He's not well, on they, my side. They had a right? strike at GM, I believe, in, in 2019. 2019 and he's right. like, where were you then? Exactly. And his his tax bill uh, incentivized outsourcing. There was a net outsourcing of 200,000 manufacturing jobs when he was president. The Lordstown plant shut down. A number of other plants shut down. So he was very clear. Not that guy. But then when it comes to Biden... He, his contention is, I have specific demands of you that you need to meet before I endorse you. Right. And it, again, it's specific. Like you said, as part, of the, um, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, they had some stuff in there about subsidies for green and renewable technology and, and the, um, the electric cars. And they, there's stuff in the IRA about how they have to be high paying jobs, but they wanted, the union wanted it to be union jobs. There's and actually, they didn't put union jobs. And there's not much in terms of high wage jobs. So they're like sort of mildly incentivized for some of the credits to have the jobs be well paying. But yeah, I mean, they're they're facing the future of their industry and the future is electric vehicles. The union is not opposed to the EV transition because, I mean, you can't be. It's it's coming, right. whether it's mm -hmm. Trump or Biden or whoever is president, whether it's here or it's China that's dominating the industry. They want to be part of it. They want the jobs to be union jobs. They want them to be high wage jobs. And so, yeah, they were when he pointedly declined to endorse Biden, very specific about what the problems and were here's and what, you what can they do wanted to see to get yeah. our endorsement. And by the way, to be totally fair, Biden actually wanted those union requirements. And it was Manchin. And it was Manchin. Right. Now, did by could Biden have fought him harder? Could right. he have pushed? Mm -hmm. Of course. Right. Of course. I don't want to, like, absolve him of blame. But there was a particular bad actor here who is the explicit reason why those provisions didn't make it in. But it is really unfortunate because if you look at the um, battery plants, one thing I, I learned about recently that I didn't realize is the components that go into these EV batteries are oftentimes toxic and quite dangerous. So it's not just about the wage standards. It's also the safety standards. There was a battery plant, I believe in uh, Lordstown, where they had a, a toxic spill that endangered the health of all these workers. And shortly after that, they had a union election and it was like, 565 to 17 in favor of the union because they saw the way that their health and safety was just completely mm. disposable to the bosses without having the force of the union to back them up. So there are a lot of reasons why it's really important that that industry not be part of just another race to the bottom, because that's typically what happens when there's a new technology. The boss class uses it as an excuse to screw people over and reset the standards and put them back down at, you know, minimum wage or short or just a little bit above that. Um, and so there that is a, a important part of the fight that they're waging right now is to make sure that not only do the jobs stay here, not only do they have good wages in terms of you know the traditional uh, internal combustion engine cars, but that as we transition to EVs, that they still are good union, well-paying jobs here in the United States of America. Yeah. And I just I, I just respect the way he's handled it, obviously, with the demands he's making for his workers, which are great demands and the way he's handling the strike and the way he's handling national politics. I don't think 
what he's I, I wouldn't classify what he's doing as a false equivalence between Trump and Biden. No, he's very clearly like Trump is worse. But also if Biden wants our support. There's ways he can get it, but he's got to deliver. Yeah, on here's those our bar. Right. Yeah. And you so, got to meet it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And it's existential to them. It really is. So it's not it's not a small thing. Yeah, of course. So anyway, love to see it. Uh, we are somebody from Nina Turner. Uh, everybody definitely go check it out. Uh, it's awesome that she's doing something vis-a-vis -vis labor and trying to help out as much as possible yeah, on that front. Yeah, I was excited, very excited to see that. Yeah, so that's all we got for you guys today. We love you all. Uh, everybody do us a big favor if you haven't already. Um, go on over to Substack. If you pay five bucks a month for Crystal Kyle and Friends, you get the video of every interview and debate and all that stuff, and you get it a day early. Everybody else can sign up for free, and you get the audio version of the podcast a day later on Saturdays. Remember, we never have any conversation with any advertiser or corporation for what we do here. With this show is 100% funded through small dollar donations, so please consider helping us out. And that's all we got for you guys. We love you very much, and we'll talk to you soon.